You know, uh, we've been back in America for about two months, a little over two months, and uh, it seems like I've done two things since I've been home. Uh, work on that old house and answer people's questions. So I'm going to try to blend those two together and, and try to make some sense of that in this message. You know, even the other day I received the honorary title of the grass evangelist. I, I don't know what all that means. I certainly ain't got any benefits from it yet, but I... I hadn't got no office. I thought maybe construction would start real soon on my office over there, but I hadn't seen that. Uh, but I'm still answering questions. Uh, they get to drink their cold drinks and eat their lunch, and I answer their questions. I, I don't have time for anything else. Amen. But I'm glad to do it. Amen. I'm, I'm thankful I got something to say. Amen. Hopefully I got something to say from God this morning. You know, here recently a young man asked me a question, and... Uh, he had an observation that he had seen over a period of time, and he said he wondered exactly what's going on with people. He sees them. They read their Bibles all the time. Uh, he sees them. There's, you know, they come to the services regular. Uh, they go through all the motions of religion, and yet something's still wrong in their life. You know, they, after such a long period of time, they still don't bring forth the fruit of a life hid with Christ in God. He's a young man, and he sees that, you know. And, uh, you know, that day I answered his question rather briefly. Uh, but today, I believe I'm going to dive in here and go into a little more detail about that. And we're going to try to maybe look at the cause and the remedy for this. Amen. So today, I'm, I'm going to talk about a foundation. That's what I'm going to talk about. And... Uh, much of what I've uh, been preached, some of it's going to be covered, uh, just in a little bit different way. That's pretty much the way the Holy Ghost does when he's speaking to people. Amen. So, you know, but this element of a foundation, it's something that is so missing in people in the church today. It's really missing now. They're building a lot of stuff, but they've lacked to put that foundation in its place. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 22 through 29. This is the Lord Jesus speaking here. And he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened to a foolish man, <clears throat> which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Let's pray. 
Father, we just come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessed privilege, Father, to preach and to hear the word of God, Father. I thank you for the word of God today. I believe your word that it's settled in heaven, amen. I pray that it'll get settled in our hearts here today, Father, amen, that we will really hear what the Holy Ghost is saying to us in this time, Father, that we'll really give the more earnest heed, Father, to these things that we've heard and put them into practice practice in our lives, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, after Jesus had finished preaching this, this sermon here, this Sermon on the Mount, this is possibly one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. This is exactly how Jesus ended that sermon. Now, Jesus, both being fully God and fully man, he knew that multitudes were going to hear his words over the generations, words that are going to judge every soul throughout eternity. He knew, though, that multitudes would hear those words and do very little with those words. You know, we often think of the fool as the mocker and the scoffer out there on the college campus or that person out there at Illusions that's mocking and scoffing, and there's no doubt about it. About it, they are rather foolish, you know, but the biggest fool is the person who sits in God's presence week after week now, and he does not allow the Holy Ghost to rightly apply God's word to his heart on a daily basis. He doesn't believe and he doesn't submit himself to the righteous processes that are in Christ to conform his entire life to the image of God's Son. Instead, he builds his house upon the sinking sand in spite of this clear warning given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ with these terrible consequences that are going to follow building upon that sand. Now, the Bible plainly teaches us that we are to be built up a spiritual house, it says, offering up the sacrifice of praise continually unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it also teaches teaches us this. It says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if Brother Jerry is building a upon gold, silver, and precious stones, and I'm building this house upon wood, hay, and stubble, that nobody's going to live in this house in pleasure, much less God come and live in this house in pleasure. Now, nobody builds a house just to look at it. Amen? They build a house to live in it. That's why they build it. And when they build that house, they want certain elements to be there in that house to their pleasure in order that they can live their lives in fullness in that house. Well, so it is with the Holy Ghost and with us, the temple of God. Yet for all of these elements to be in their proper place, a foundation has to be in order. And this whole thing or the whole house is going to come crumbling down when the winds, the rains, and the floods begin to beat against that house. And you can count on it, my friend. You know, it doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't even matter whether you're a Christian or not. You're going to face the winds, the rains, and the floods of life. Everybody faces them. 
everybody without exception. The only person that's going to stand this test is going to be the person who is in Christ. And Christ is in them. They'll be able to stand the test in time and through eternity. When we read of those letters to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, it's rather easy to see that Jesus was dealing with some foundational issues with five of those churches, and these issues had either been neglected or they had been forsaken, one of the two, and maybe possibly both. Now, it wasn't that they couldn't set these foundational issues in order. It was that they would not do so. And so it is today, my friend. It's not that people cannot do what Jesus says. It's that they will not do what Jesus said. Now, thank God that he is merciful, that he is kind, that he is unwilling that anybody perish. Praise God for that. Amen? That's one reason why God sends us his word by the Holy Ghost. Amen? He wants to do something. He wants to help us. And for a little while this morning, I'm going to address just three areas of a foundation. There are many others, but I'm just going to deal with three of them. Amen? And, and that they must be built up on that solid rock, Christ Jesus. And the failure to do so, it's going to reap terrible repercussions, both in time and throughout eternity. First... And I want you to listen to me close now because this is something that's nearly been forgotten now. Because a man wrote one time on Facebook, you know, why don't you think we have a revival today in the Pentecostal church? And I wrote to him about this very issue right here. But the first, I believe in the most important thing is humility. You know, Pentecostal people used to be known for their humility. Used to. I don't know what we're known for now, but they used to be known as a humble people. But you know, when Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly where he started. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knew humility was the very starting point. Like so many things in the kingdom of God, this issue of humility, it is seldom dealt with, and it is often avoided like a plague. You know that? And yet it's perhaps the most important and foundational issue to Christian living that there can be, this issue of humility. You see, your entire Christian life hinges on that one issue. Do you know that? See, without humility... God's going to resist you. That's what the Bible says. And you're going to be without grace. And there is nobody that can live the Christian life without the abundance of God's grace through our Lord Jesus Christ administered by the Holy Ghost. Amen? But you just think about this. What a sobering thought that it is that our love to God is going to be measured by our everyday intercourse with mankind and the love it displays. And that our love to God, it'll be found a delusion, except its truth is proved in standing the test of daily life with our fellow man. Well, even so it is with humility. Amen? It's easy for us to think that we're humble before God, but humility towards men is going to be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is genuine. 
Amen. The proof that our humility is real is when humility is actually taken up its abode within us, that it's not something that's just coming and going at times. Amen. Where we have really become a humble person. You see, that it becomes our very nature to be humble. That we, like Christ, have made ourselves of no reputation. When in the presence of God, lowliness of heart, it has to become not just a posture that we pray to God in, but also the very spirit of our life. Then it will manifest itself in all manner of life towards our fellow man. The only humility that is truly ours is not only what we show before God in prayer, but that which we carry out with us in our ordinary conduct of everyday life. Now, there are many things in our daily life that they seem so insignificant, but in reality they are extremely important because they are the test for eternity. Amen? They prove what spirit really possesses us moment by moment. You see, it's in your most unguarded moments of your life that really shows who you are. Think about that, your most unguarded moments. That's when the enemy wants to catch you. Amen? All right? Now, to know the humble man, to know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in his common everyday life. And that's exactly what Jesus taught us in the scriptures. It was when those disciples, they were disputing over who's going to be the greatest. Or when Jesus saw how the Pharisees loved the chief place at the feast and the chief seats at the synagogue. And when Jesus had given them the example of washing their feet, that Jesus taught his disciples these lessons on humility. Well, humility before God is nothing if it's not proved in humility before mankind. And in his epistles, the Apostle Paul taught this very thing. To the Roman, the Apostle wrote, Be ye kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but consent to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. To the Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaulteth not of itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. But see, there is no love without humility at its root. Amen. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. He also said, Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. To the Ephesians, immediately after writing three wonderful chapters on the heavenly life in Christ, Paul exhorted them, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. And how you to walk? With all lowliness of mind, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. 
Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To the Colossians he wrote, and you notice this is all through his teachings now. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, it's in our relationship one to another, in our treatment of one to another, that true lowliness of mind and heart and humility are to be seen. Our humility before God, it has no value at all, but as it prepares us to reveal the humility of Jesus Christ before our fellow man and to our fellow man. The humble man, he seeks to act upon that rule at all times in honor preferring one another being a servant one of another each person counting each other better than himself and you know the questions often asked when you begin to talk about this kind of thing you know well how can we count others better than ourselves when we see that they're so far below us in wisdom and in holiness and natural gifts and in grace you know well you know that question at once it proves how little that they understand what real lowliness of mind is True humility comes when in the light of God's presence, we've seen ourselves to be nothing. And that's exactly what we are, my friend. Then when we part with self, when we cast it away, and we let God be all in our life, that soul that has done that, he can truly say, in losing myself, I have found Jesus. That soul no longer will compare itself with others. It's not going to do it. It's seen Jesus, and now it's going to compare itself with the standard, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given up every thought of self in the presence of God. That soul then meets its fellow man as one who is nothing, amen, and it seeks nothing for itself as one that's a servant of God and for Jesus' sake a servant one of another. You know, in the natural, it's possible that a faithful servant be wiser than his master and yet still retain the true spirit and the posture of a servant. That's possible. That humble man, he can look upon the weakest child of God and honor him and prefer him in honor as the son of a king, King Jesus. The spirit of him who washed those disciples' feet, he makes it a joy indeed to be the least, to be servants one of another if you really got him living on the inside of you. That humble man, he feels no jealousy, no envy when he's neglected or abused. He can praise God when others are praised and blessed before he is or preferred. He can joyfully hear others praise and himself forgotten because in God's presence, he's learned to say with the Apostle Paul, I'm nothing, though I be nothing. As the Apostle Paul said, he's received the spirit of Jesus Christ who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the very spirit of his own life. You know, what are amid or consider the temptations to impatience and touchiness and to hard thoughts and sharp words which come from the failings and the sins of others. The humble man shows his life and clings to that often repeated command for bearing one another and forgiving one another. 
He clings to that. He remembers as Jesus has forgiven me. He's learned that in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's put on that heart of compassion and kindness and humility, meekness and long-suffering. Jesus is now taking the place of self, and it's not an impossibility for him to forgive because he knows Jesus' true forgiveness in his life. His humility doesn't consist in merely just thoughts and words of self-depreciation, but as Paul put it, Put on, therefore, or be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. He's been clothed with compassion, with kindness, with meekness and long-suffering. The lowly gentleness that's recognized as the mark of the Lamb of God. And striving after the higher experiences of the Christian life, the believer he's often tempted of aiming at or rejoicing in one might, one might call the human or the man, more manly virtues, such as boldness, contempt for the world, zeal, and self-sacrifice. And certainly, don't mistake me here, certainly those things have their place in Christianity. But I want to tell you, there have been some very religious yet lost people who have taught and practiced those things over the years all the while the deeper the gentler the diviner the more heavenly graces the graces that Jesus first taught those graces that he brought down from heaven those which are more distinctly connected with his cross and the true death to self like poverty of spirit meekness humility lowliness of heart and mind they're scarcely thought of are even valued in today's church world, my friend. Let us therefore put on the bowels of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And let us prove our Christ-likeness, not only in the zeal for the lost before all men, but in our intercourse with all men by forbearing with one another and forgiving one another, just as Jesus has forgiven us. And do let us earnestly study this Bible portrait of the man, Christ Jesus. And let us cry out to God and ask him, does he or those that are around us recognize anything in us in the, of the likeness of the patterned son, Jesus Christ? And let us not be content with, or let us be content with nothing less than taking the scriptures as the promises of God of what God will work in us by the Holy Ghost and let each failure, every shortcoming, let it urge you to humbly and meekly turn to the meek and lowly Lamb of God in the assurance that where he has been enthroned upon that heart, his humility and his gentleness, it'll be one of the streams of living water that'll flow within you and out of you to others. I want you to listen to this real closely, my friend. This is what George Fox had to say on one occasion. He said, I knew Jesus, and he was very precious to my soul. But I found something in me that would not keep sweet and patient and kind. And I did what I could to keep it down, but it was there. And I besought Jesus to do something for me. And when I gave him my will, he came to my heart and took out all that would not be sweet, all that would not be kind, all that would not be patient, and then he shut the door. Mm. Mm. Oh, how we need to pray through like that man prayed through and touched Jesus 
If we do, we'll find the same Jesus that George Fox found. Amen. And also, let us look on every person that tries us and vexes us as God's means of grace, as God's instrument of purification so that we can exercise the humility of Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know how many years ago it's been. It's been a number of years. Me and Charlie, we worked together. Uh, we shared equipment. We worked together and uh, for a whole, about a whole year. And Charlie had a young man working for him, and the young man, most a lot of you here know him. He was a rather difficult young man to get along with uh, just about any time. And, uh, but anyway... You know, uh, he did all the weed eating, and me and Charlie, we did the stick edge and the cutting and the blowing and all. But anyway, uh, he wouldn't pick up sticks. And, ooh, man, that had eat me up now, I'm going to just tell you. And I, you just don't know. I didn't say nothing to nobody, you know. It's the first time I'm ever saying it. That'd eat me up. He wouldn't pick them sticks up, you know. I, and in all honesty, I've seen him step on sticks and fly up and hit him. And he still wouldn't pick them up and throw them out of the way. He'd just keep on going, you know. You'd have to go by with the moor and stop, turn it off, get off, pick up the stick, go bring it somewhere, do something, you know. And it's taking you extra time. And I'm telling you, that thing would just eat on me and just eat on me, you know. And then, you know, I learned something in that situation that uh, I was more concerned about my inconvenience than I was his soul. Uh, I needed, to be, needed that to be brought to the light in my life. And God knew who and how to bring that to light to my soul. You, you got one of them waiting for you when you leave now. Amen. I probably do too. Amen. God have mercy on us all. Amen. The next foundational issue is absolute surrender. Amen. And we may have heard this before, but we're going to hear it again. Because we truly need to understand that the condition of usefulness and blessing in the kingdom of God, it is absolute surrender of all into God's hands. You, you need to hear that well. You know, over these years, you listen to an old man talk to you for just a minute here now. Over these years, I've had the blessed opportunity to speak to and preach to a number of people in several different countries, you know. And it's evident that many of them were truly Christians and that many Many of them even were even called to preach the gospel, the call of God's on their life. Yet over a period of time, I've watched almost every one of them fall back, either into dead formalism or just back into the world. It's pretty sad. But, you know, as I survey their condition, and I often do this kind of thing, uh, I, I often think, you know, what, what's the cause of their backsliding? And I always come away with the same conclusion. In each case, they refuse this condition of absolute surrender to God in every area of life. You know, it may have been their wife. It may have been their children. It might have been money. It might have been houses, lands, fear, whatever. You just name it. Whatever it is, it's always this same thing. It's this obstinate refusal to surrender all into the hands of God. No man is exempt from that principle of leaven as just a little leaven will leaven the whole lump given some period of time. 
some sooner than others but the principle of leaven it is unchangeable wherever it may be found throughout this earth in creation my friend if you're going to overcome if you're going to endure to the end if you're going to be a blessing to God and a blessing to others and have your prayers answered absolute surrender is not an option on the table my friend it is the condition of God to be a blessing it is the condition that God would have put on your life to bless you and your family the question we need to ask and we need to answer is am I truly willing to surrender myself absolutely into God's hands you know God knows that there's been multitudes who said they would and probably some said it here last night and there may be others who long to do so but they fear and they begin to reason about this leap of faith still others they've attempted it and they've miserably failed and now they feel themselves condemned because they didn't find that secret of power to live that surrendered life well, I pray this word from God is going to help every one of us here with this subject today. First of all, God, he claims absolute surrender. You know that? He claims it from every one of us. Absolute surrender, it has its foundation in the very nature of God. God cannot do otherwise. You think about it. Who is God? Well, he is the fountain of life. He's the only source of existence, the only source of power and goodness. Throughout this universe, there's nothing good but what God does. God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the flowers, the trees, the grass, all those things. Are they not all absolutely yielded up into God's hands? Do they not allow God to work in them just what he pleases? When God clothes that lily of the field with his beauty, is it not yielded up? surrendered given over to God as he works that beauty in that plant would any of us dare say that God could work his work in them if only half of them or a part of them were surrendered to God you know God he's life he's love blessing power infinite beauty and he desires to communicate himself to every soul that's prepared to receive him but it's this lack of absolute surrender that hinders God from doing just that. You know, things in our daily life, they demonstrate what absolute surrender is. We know that everything, it's given up to its special and definite purpose, a definite service. For example, you know, if I had a pen here today, my pen would be absolutely surrendered to the one work of writing. That's what it was created for. But that pen, it also has to be absolutely surrendered to my hand if I'm going to write with it properly. If someone else holds it or even partially holds it, I cannot write with it properly. Amen? My coat, if I had a coat on here today, it's given to me to cover my body to keep me warm when it's cold. If someone else has a part of my coat, then my coat cannot function properly and carry out its purpose of its design. This building here today, it's entirely given up for this church service. And if somebody else were to come in here today and try to use this building for another purpose, then the whole of this building would be set at variance to its existence. Well, now, do we expect in our immortal being, in the divine nature that we've received by regeneration, that God can work his work in us every day and every hour unless we are totally 
absolutely surrendered into his hands. Amen? He cannot do it. That temple of Solomon, when it was surrendered to God, when it was dedicated to God, when that consecration was made complete, then God filled that temple with his glory. Where every one of us that are born again here today, we are the temple of God in which God will dwell and work mightily, but on that one condition. It's an absolute surrender of all into his hands. You see, God claims absolute surrender. He's worthy of absolute surrender. And without it, God cannot and God will not work. His blessed work in us or through us. Amen. Secondly, God not only claims absolute surrender, and this is good news, but he will also work it inside of us. Amen. That's the good news of this covenant. I'm sure there's many of heart that said, oh, that absolute surrender, it implies so much. And somebody else might say, well, you know, I've passed through so many trials and I've been through so much suffering and there seems to be so much of that self-life still remaining. I, I dare not think about even trying to give up all of it because surely it'll cause me so much more trouble and agony in my life. Well, you know, such thoughts of God, they're cruel and they're false. Because the true message of God, it always delivers men from the fear and the anxiety that would stifle faith to surrender all. God doesn't ask you to give the perfect surrender of all in your own strength or in your own wisdom. Listen to Zechariah chapter 4 where it says, And then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord, and there's a rubble, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Well, as it was with Zerubbabel, when he faced this mountain that seemed impossible to overcome, so it is with us in this matter of absolute surrender. This is what we should seek for to go before God and get on our faces in prayer until our hearts have learned to believe that the everlasting God, when he comes in, he'll throw out everything that's wrong. He'll throw out, he'll conquer everything that's evil. He'll work in us everything that's well-pleasing in his sight if we'll just cooperate with him. Amen? And the last foundational issue that I'm going to deal here with today is obedience. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll read verses 8 and 9. And though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. Now, in the very beginning of this, let us be warned about a misunderstanding of this expression, learned obedience. Because there's many people that are prone to think that absolute obedience is a principle of being obedient unto death. That is a thing that can only be gradually learned in the kingdom of God. 
that is a terrible and most dangerous error to make, my friend. What we do learn and what we do have to learn gradually is the practice of obedience in new and more difficult commands. But as to this principle of full obedience, Jesus wants us from the very entrance into his kingdom to take that vow of entire obedience to his lordship, whatever that we have to face in life. Amen. It doesn't matter. I'm already given up to Jesus from the very beginning. You know, a little child of three years old, he can be as completely obedient as an 18-year-old. Do you know that? The three-year-old child, he can pick up his toys when you teach him how. He can learn to eat what's set before him every time. He can come every time that you call him. That youth of 18, he can do that and so much more. Amen? The difference lies... Between the two, the difference between the two lies not in the principle, but in the nature of the work that's demanded of each one of them. You know, though through though Christ's external obedience unto death, it came at the end of his life. The spirit of his obedience was the same from the very beginning. You know, one of the first things that we read of our Lord Jesus Christ was when at the age of 12, we find him in the temple where he's asking and answering questions. And if you remember, we heard it here recently, that Mary asked Jesus upon their return to Jerusalem where she said, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? And you remember Jesus answered her. He said, I must be about my father's business. Well, there's a couple of things I want to point out here, my friend. And first of all, what is your must? And you just think about that. What, re- what really is my must in life? Is it I must have significance in the church? Is it I got to look good when I'm called upon to preach? Hmm? Is it that? Is it I- I've got to have financial security? I'm beginning to get a little older. and I've, I've got to have something laid up for myself. Is it that? I must have this. I must have that. Or with you younger folks, I must have companionship. Is that your must? Huh? Jesus' must was doing the will of his Father. If you remember on one occasion, Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying the very nourishment of my life is to do my Father's will and complete the work that He sent me to do. That's what gives me nourishment in life. Amen? Is that your very life? You think about that. The next thing I want you to notice about this instance with Jesus is that He returned back to His hometown with His parents. And I'm sure that that devil and that flesh were there to tell Jesus now, look here now. You've got more important things to do than this now to return back with your parents. (laughs) Think about it, Jesus. You're the Savior of the world. Huh? And here, they want you to return back to this little hole-in-the-wall town in the middle of nowhere with your parents? Think about it, my friend. Some of you young, young folks here, I want you to think about this here today when I'm talking to you. You see, Jesus, he didn't violate that principle of honor your father and your mother all the days of your life in attempting to do the will of God. He didn't violate that. 
Jesus returned home with Mary and Joseph. And for the next 18 years, the will of God for Jesus was at a carpenter's bench. Looks kind of humble, don't it? That's, that's a picture of the biblical Jesus. But I want to tell you something, young folks, and I want you to listen to me real well now. I want this to be one of those things that stick real deep, deep in your spirit here today. Because one day, you're going to need to hear what I'm fixing to tell you. All, A-L-L, all of God's delays are divine appointments. Every one of them. Think about it. All of them, they're divine appointments by God. And if you don't learn that lesson well now in your youth, you're going to find yourself outside of the will of God. That's what's going to happen to you. And you're going to find yourself in this wilderness experience where you're wandering around trying to figure out the will of God. And then as the years pass on, you begin to look at your bones and see they begin to get bleached as you wander around outside of the will of God. You better learn to wait upon God in your youth. You listen to me, young folks. I'm, I'm, God's saying something to you here now. Learn to wait upon God. Or are you going to face terrible repercussions in your life later on? Also, in the view of the deceitfulness of the heart of man, apart from God, you need to ask God very earnestly for the searching and convincing light of the Holy Ghost. You see, without a very earnest prayer for such, you can count on it. There's many areas of your life that God wants to talk to you about. Look at Daniel chapter 9 right quick. verse 13 Daniel is saying this he says as it is written in the law of Moses all this evil has come upon us yet may we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth I want you to notice something here because of the definite lack of prayer. Daniel said they did not turn from their sins and they did not understand God's truth. You know, if earnest prayer is lacking in your life, then there's many things that you've become accustomed to that you think they're, allow, they're, they're allowable, that they're lawful. That's what happens to you. But Jesus wants some things different in your life. And if you earnestly pray and seek God, he'll talk to you about those things. To consider it a settled thing just because other people are doing it or because you think it's allowable is going to shut you out from knowing the real will of God for your whole life and your family. Bring everything without reserve into the judgment of the word of God. Explain by the Holy Ghost and learn to wait upon God to know that everything you are and everything you do is pleasing in His sight. Amen. Let's take some time and consider the Word of God. 
What's the Holy Ghost trying to say to us in this time? Let's take some time here today to do that. Amen.